0: Hi, I'm Brad Constantine, and this is a Come Follow Me podcast of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Although this is not an official podcast of the Church, every effort has been made to be as doctrinally accurate as possible. This year's study is the Book of Mormon. Each week, a new summary podcast of that week's Book of Mormon chapters will be released. But if you want a more detailed analysis of each individual chapter, those will also be available to listen to. I hope this Come, Follow Me resource will be helpful to you. As always, you can subscribe to this podcast so you'll be notified each week of a new episode. I hope you like this uh, format. Thank you. Hi, and welcome back to this Come, Follow Me podcast of the Book of Mormon. This is going to be Lesson 46, and it's going to be covering the chapters of uh, Ether, chapters 12 through 15. And it will be for the time period November 23rd through the 29th. So uh, this is going to be the conclusion of the book of Ether, uh, but uh, we're going to talk about some doctrine in here, and Moroni is going to teach us a bit of doctrine and uh, talk about some principles of the gospel as well. So it's not just about the destruction of the Jaredites, but there's some principles here that are really important. All right. Um, so he's talking in verse 1 about Ether in the days of Coriantumr, and Coriantumur is the king of the land, and remember that Coriantumr is going to be the last one to survive the Jaredite uh, civilization, and he's going to be found by the people of Zarahemla, and he'll live among them for nine moons. And so uh, let's read about him and read some scriptures here. Verse 6 is a scripture mastery verse. And now I, I would speak somewhat concerning these things. I would show unto the world that faith is things which are hoped for and not seen. Wherefore, dispute not because ye see not, for ye receive no witness until after the trial of your faith. So this is a very important Uh, concept that uh, we're we're not going to always know the end from the beginning, but we need to uh, uh, have faith in the Lord before the the miracles happen. Uh, Elder Maxwell said, adversity can increase faith or instead can cause the troubling roots of bitterness to spring up. One's life, therefore, cannot be both faith-filled and stress-free. Therefore, how can you and I really expect to glide naively through life, as if to say, Lord, give me experience, but not grief, not sorrow, not pain, not opposition, not betrayal, and certainly not to be forsaken. Keep from me, Lord, all those experiences which made thee what thou art. Then let me come and dwell with thee, and full share thy joy. Not going to happen, is it? Uh, Verse 7, it says, for... It was by faith that Christ showed himself unto our fathers after he had risen from the dead, and he showed not himself unto them until after they had faith in him. Um, so talking here about, uh, in verse 80, he says, because of faith, man, man, he has shown himself unto the world and glorified the name of the Father and prepared a way that thereby others may be partakers of the heavenly gift. And so as we become more faithful, um, then we will have visions open to us as well. Down to verse 27, if men come unto me, I will show unto them their weakness. I give unto men weakness that they may be humble. I think it's interesting to to contemplate uh, that God doesn't necessarily give us weaknesses, but that because of the condition of our mortality, we are going to have weaknesses. One of the purposes of the conditions created by the fall is to impel men to acknowledge their own weaknesses of the flesh and depend more on the power of God than on the arm of flesh. Hardships and afflictions and mortality are often allowed by an omniscient God in order to turn the hearts of the children of men to him. In order in, in addition to the universal weaknesses of the flesh that come as a result of the fall, the Lord will at times give unto men a personalized individual challenge that is designed to increase a person's faith and de- faith in and dependence upon the Lord. It is in these moments of personal pain and recognition of our individual weaknesses and limitations that humbly leaning upon the ample arm of Jesus produces strength which compensates for and overcomes mortal weaknesses the lord's giving us weaknesses in order that we may be humbly that we may humbly look to him as our source of strength is not just a series of isolated events in a lifetime but rather is an ongoing process I like this comment by C.S. Lewis. He says, When a man turns to Christ and seems to be getting on pretty well, in the sense that some of his bad habits are now corrected, he often feels that it would be it would now be natural if things went fairly smoothly. When troubles come along, illnesses, money troubles, new kinds of temptation, he is disappointed. These things, he feels, might have been necessary to rouse him and make him repent in his bad old days, but why now? Because God is forcing him on up to a higher level, putting him into situations where he will have to be very much braver or more patient or more loving than he ever dreamed of before. It seems to us all unnecessary, but that is because we have not yet got the slightest notion of the tremendous thing he means to make of us. Brother Ludlow said, Some have mistakenly believed that the Lord gave us weaknesses. He did not. We inherited the weakness that come as part of being mortals who are in a fallen state and who are susceptible to weaknesses. Individual character flaws that may beset us as a result of our being in this fallen state. We did not have those character flaws as spirits in our premortal state. Identifying the weaknesses that do develop and working to overcome them is the way we eventually become like the Savior. And then continuing the verse, he says, And my grace is sufficient for all men that humble themselves before me. For if they humble themselves before me and have faith in me, then will I make weak things become strong unto them. Bruce Hafen has said, Whatever the weakness, Christ can supply the strength to overcome it. All other earthly efforts to overcome the effects of the weaknesses of the flesh, as helpful as they may be, are limited in their soul-transforming power. It is through the grace of Christ that even mortal inadequacies are compensated for or overcome while we yet tarry in the flesh. Through faithful acceptance of the atonement of Jesus Christ, all losses can be ultimately restored, all suffering can cease, and all inequities and injustices in life can be rectified. The Savior desires to save us from our inadequacies as well as from our sins. And then verse 28, he says, Behold, I will show unto the Gentiles their weakness, and I will show unto them that faith, hope, and charity bringeth unto me the fountain of all righteousness. And then Moroni begins to recount some examples of people that had faith and the things that they did. He mentions in 30 that the brother Jared moved a mountain uh, because of his great faith. Um, And then in verse 38, um, Moroni says, I bid farewell unto the Gentiles, yea, and also unto my brethren whom I love, until we shall meet before the judgment seat of Christ where all men shall know that my garments are not spotted with your blood. And then shall ye know that I have seen Jesus and that he hath talked with me face to face. He's not bragging here. He's just showing that uh, in spite of the conditions that he was faced with, all the wickedness around him, there were still opportunities for wonderful experiences. And he's also showing us that we can have the same experience if we have the faith sufficient and keeping the commandments like he did. In verse 41, Now I commend you to seek this Jesus of whom the prophets and apostles have written. Um, so we are commended to do that. Verse, or chapter 13, <clears throat> Moroni is now talking about um, that he's finishing up his record here. So he's talking here now about the New Jerusalem. Verse 3 <clears throat> that it was the place of the New Jerusalem, meaning the, the American continent, uh, and which should come down out of heaven and the holy sanctuary of the Lord. Ether saw the days of Christ and he spake concerning a New Jerusalem. And upon this land, meaning the the land of America. So he's talking here about that there will be a city of New Jerusalem built upon the American continent. Verse 6, and that a New Jerusalem shall be built upon this land and to the remnant of the seed of Joseph, for which things there has been a type. Elder McConkie taught that this earth was created in a new or paradisiacal state, then incident to Adam's transgression, it fell to its present celestial state. At the second coming of our Lord, it will be renewed, regenerated, refreshed, transfigured, become again a new earth, a paradisiacal earth. And I would parenthetically say it's going to be a terrestrial earth. Its millennial status will be a return to its pristine state of beauty and glory, the state that existed before the fall. This same designation applies also to the celestial heaven and earth that will prevail in the day when the Father and the Son make this planet their habitation. And Then in verse 10 he says, Then cometh the new Jerusalem, in other words, the city that... uh, There's going to be three basic uh, cities that he mentions here. There's going to be a city of Jerusalem in the old world. There will be a new Jerusalem built in Jackson County. And then the the new Jerusalem or the city of Zion that will be the city of the people of Enoch will again return uh, back to the earth. In verse 31, then also cometh the Jerusalem of old and the inhabitants thereof. Blessed are they, for they have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. So uh, the building up of Jerusalem in the old world. And then he mentions that the first will be last and the last will be first in verse 12, meaning that the, the gospel will go first to the Gentiles and then to the Jews. In verse 13, he mentions Moroni mentions that he was forbidden to write anymore, um, but great are the prophecies of, of Ether. It would be nice to know. Isn't it interesting that we have Nephi, we have John, and now we have uh, Moroni that are co- that are compelled to stop writing some of the prophecies that they'd seen. It'd be nice if we could know what they had, what they had seen. I guess we can know if we're if we're living right, right. So anyway, now the rest of this chapter is about Coriantumr being uh, not repenting. That Ether goes among them and is re- is trying to call them to repentance, uh, but that they're not uh, they're not repenting. And so uh, chapter 14 then continues the 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 bad scene here of uh, lots of wars going back and forth. Uh, one kingdom after another fighting against Coriantum basically and um, and continuing to fight, uh, that there's no giving up. There's a time period of about three or four years when, when uh, or two years when Coriantum stops fighting because he's lost so much blood. They gather together a lot of their people. Uh, chapter 15, uh, he mentions here the number of people that are killed in verse 2. He says, I've already seen nearly two millions of, of my people, and that's just of the men. Uh, Doug Brindley said, "To provide some perspective of the magnitude of the slaughter among Coreantimer's people, we note that at the time Ether approached him with a solution to save people, Coreantimer presided over a kingdom numbering millions of inhabitants. The record says that there had been slain two millions of mighty men, and also their wives and their children. If even half of these men were married, and the average family size included a wife and only two to three children, there would have been between eight or six to eight million people in his kingdom." From the American Revolution war through Vietnam conflict, including the Civil War, wars that introduced weapons of mass destruction, only 652,769 Americans died on the battlefield compared to the millions killed in these final Jaredite struggles where the people died in hand-to-hand combat. So this is uh, not a happy scene, and uh, Moroni is just giving us a taste of it so that we can see that those that don't keep the commandments, the Lord is serious, He he will sweep them off. And so that's what's happening here. Uh, as we get down to um, down to the end of chapter 15, uh, it's now just between Coriantumr and Shiz, and uh, these are the last two to fight, and so Coriantumr is allowed to uh, kill him, and uh, Coriantumr kills Shiz, and Coriantumr uh, lays as if he's dead in verse 32. Let me just read you a little uh, in- insert here by Hugh Nibley: The insane wars of the Jaredite chiefs ended in the complete annihilation of both sides. With the kings, the last to go, the same thing had almost happened earlier in the days of Akish when a civil war between him and his sons reduced the population to 30. This all seems improbable to us, but two circumstances peculiar to Asiatic warfare explain why the phenomenon is by no means without parallel. Since every war is strictly a personal contest between kings, the battle must continue until one of the kings falls or is taken. And yet things are so arranged that the king must be the very last to fall, the whole army existing for the sole purpose of defending his person. This is clearly seen in the game of chess in which all pieces are expendable except the king, who can never be taken. The shah in chess, writes Mogdaham is not killed and does not die. The game is terminated when the shah is pressed to a position from which he cannot escape. This is in line with all good traditions of chess playing, and back of it the tradition of capturing the king in war, rather than slaying him, whenever this could be accomplished. You'll recall the many instances in the Book of Ether in which kings were kept in prison for many years but not killed, in the code of medieval chivalry taken over from Central Asia. The person of the king is sacred, and all others must perish in his defense. After the battle, the victor may do what he will with his rival, and infinitely ingenious tortures were sometimes devised for the final reckoning. But as long as the war went on, the king could not die. For whenever he did die, the war was over, no matter how strong his surviving forces. Even so, Shiz was willing to spare all of Coriantumar's subjects if he could only behead Coriantumar with his own sword. In that case, of course, the subjects would become his own. The circle of warriors, large and mighty men as to the strength of men that fought around their kings to the last man, represent that same ancient institution, the sacred shield wall, which our own Norse ancestors took over from Asia and which meets us again and again in the ways of the in the wars of the tribes, in which no one then, in which on more than one occasion the king actually was the last to perish. So let no one think the final chapter of Ether is at all fanciful or overdrawn. Wars of extermination are a standard institution in the history of Asia. And again, that was by Hugh Nibley. I bear testimony that these things are true, that we have been reading translated material, and uh, that the promise that uh, those that keep the commandments will prosper upon the land of America, and those that don't will be swept off, as is illustrated here by the Jaredites and also by the Nephites. I bear testimony that these things are true and say it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.